Good morning, Covenant. We are continuing in our summer preaching series, our summer teaching series, Stories of God. We are on a journey throughout, through the Bible. It has been our hope, it continues to be our hope that we are not simply throwing biblical facts at you, but rather that we are really hoping that we will all begin to see common themes and threads that run through the entirety of scripture, threads that hold the whole story together. These threads work in your life, they work in my life today as well. We're gonna be a few minutes before we read from Amos. Today we will be in one of the minor prophets. We find ourselves again this morning in the prophetic genre of scripture. Last Sunday, I know we found ourselves in the, the book of Jeremiah in, the, uh, in a major prophet from scripture. And John last Sunday invited us to consider the role of prophet. If it is not simply to predict the future or to just speak truth to power, what is the task of the prophet? John suggested last Sunday that the prophet's job was to spark our imagination for what the world should be and is not yet to help us to imagine that it could otherwise be something different than it currently is. The prophetic genre of the Old Testament, there's two major categories. You've got the major prophets, you have the minor prophets. The major prophet, excuse me, you guys. I was outside a lot yesterday and all of a sudden, it's upon me. A major prophet is not called a major prophet because they are more favored by God, more anointed by God, having, they have something more important to say than other prophets. That is not the case. A major prophet is described as a major prophet because those books in the Old Testament tend to be longer and the focus of those books tends to be quite broad in scope. A minor prophet is described as a minor prophet because those books tend to be quite a bit shorter and the focus of those books tends to be much more pointed. Last week, we looked at a major prophet, Jeremiah, a weeping prophet who was really sad, showing us that not all prophets are angry. Today, we get the angry prophet, the minor prophet, Amos, who is a spokesperson for an angry God. I have to tell you, I was surprised that summer reading plan that, that we distributed that many of you are, are using, I know it's available online, I was surprised when I saw that summer reading plan when it was published to see that Amos was the book listed for the Minor Prophets. I had intended to preach from Hosea, but because of a miscommunication within the staff, Amos was printed instead of Hosea. So two Sundays ago, On my second morning of vacation, I read through the entire book of Amos in one sitting, it's not hard to do, and I was reminded why the minor prophets are for most Christians the least favorite books of the Bible. (laughs) Every summer I spend a week in Southern California with dear friends. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It is a week that is so, important, precious, necessary for my soul and well-being. It's a delightful time of refreshment. I study, I reflect, I play, I eat good food, I rest. 
It is a part of my rule of life. For those of you who engaged in the practice of creating a rule of life last year, the way I have mine divided up, I have daily practices, weekly practices, monthly practices, and annual practices. Spending time in the backyard of the Norrises, my precious friends, a holy space, their backyard for me, it is a very important part of my rule of faith. Helping me to remember what in the world I am doing in the vocation of pastor and also in the vocation of a Christ follower as I am renewed in the company of treasured friends. Amos irritated me my entire vacation. <laughs> as I read good books on a pool raft, as I ate delicious food night after night, as we went to a day spa, Nancy and myself, my dearest friends, as, as we went to Laguna Beach for two days, as we spent two nights there in something called, the, a place called the ranch, where you are in a canyon, there's no cell phone reception, it is fantastic. You're eating breakfast overlooking a very well manicured golf course, I had so much fun just watching the, the beautiful clothes that everyone was wearing. In the recesses of my heart and my mind as I was living in the midst of all that I was doing were the words, the angry words of Amos. If you wanna have a carefree vacation, <laughs> you may not want to read Amos at the start of it. Amos lived in the final days of the crumbling nation of Israel, a sheep breeder. He is commissioned by God to bear his message of judgment upon Israel, a judgment so destructive that the nation would not survive. God gets in the face of Israel because he cares passionately about something that we often walk right by, injustice. All of this for one person, purpose, to awaken people like us from apathy. The fifth chapter of Amos, which we're gonna read in just a few moments, a portion of it, it begins with a picture of a nation in mourning. Now, I have officiated quite a few memorial services through the years after the death of a person. This is very different. What we find here in the fifth chapter of Amos is not the death of a person, it is the death of a whole nation. A funeral dirge. Weeping and wailing is present for the dead because Israel has forgotten her story. God's people fail to understand that the nature of their relationship with the Lord, at its heart, it has everything to do with being in right relationship, a quality of life lived in right relationship with the Lord and with other people. Let's turn now to a portion of the book of Amos. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink, drink their wine, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious 
to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and those skilled in lamentation to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. Awaken us, rouse us, remind us of our identity and our purpose. For the sake of one another and for your world, we humbly pray. Amen. The economy is flourishing. There are no immediate military threats. Life is good in Israel in the middle of the 8th century BC, especially if you are part of the middle or upper class. Like everyone who is pros prosperous and comfortable, most of those in Israel felt that they were enjoying the results of God's favor toward them and that their life was secure. But something isn't right. Something isn't right in God's eyes. So God places a plumb line in Israel. You can read about this in chapter seven. A cord weighted in order to check if a vertical structure is upright and true. In this plumb line, it reveals that society is self-indulgent and indifferent toward the poor and the weak. One of my earliest memories of hearing about my responsibility to protect and care for the weak came when I was in elementary school. My family took summer vacations to North Carolina by car. Living in Florida, we would drive um, at least once a year up to North Carolina. The Smoky Mountains are still a most beloved place to my family, my sister, on this trip. She had gotten a new stuffed animal. I was around eight years old, my little sister was around four. Judy loved stuffed animals. She already had a, a really big black stuffed animal bear back at home in Florida. She begged mom and dad to be able to have a, a much smaller little bear to take back home. They acquiesced to that. Judy, my sister, still remembers peering up on that top shelf. It was a whole row of little black bears, stuffed animals. She spent time and she picked out just the right bear to take home with us back to Florida, with her specifically back to Florida. Long story short, 
while in the back seat of the car with my little sister, overcome by an evil spirit. <laughs> I hung her precious new, newly purchased little black bear out the window, holding the little silver chain that was around its neck that was not built to withstand the wind pressure that it was receiving as we traveled down the interstate at a high rate of speed. There is much that I have blocked from my memory from the rest of that day. <laughs> However, I do remember my dad pulling off <clears throat> the highway and turning the car off. And that he and I got out of the car and we walked for what felt like a lifetime until we, until we found that dumb little bear, <laughs> which did not fare all that well from hitting the pavement <clears throat> at a high rate of speed, by the way. My, <clears throat> my main takeaway from that chat with my angry dad was that I was a part of a family and that it seemed to matter a whole lot to my earthly dad how I treated other members of the family, most especially anyone who had less power and who was little and vulnerable. And I was invited to put myself in another person's shoes. We all have ideas about anger. What it is, what it means, how it should be expressed, who can be angry, and why and how God feels about it that are rooted in our larger narratives, much of this coming from our family history. Uncovering these key narratives can teach us a lot about the way we experience and understand anger in the present. Scripture does not forbid God's people from ever expressing anger. We do see that we are to be careful with anger and to take responsibility for evaluating when to get angry, what to get angry about, and how to express the anger. The Bible does teach that wise people are slow to anger. Social psychologist Carol Travis writes about the misunderstood emotion of anger. Anger, like love, has a potent capacity for good and for evil. Anger is not a disease with a single cause. It is a process, a transaction, a way of communication. Anger appears to be a symptom instead of the basic problem. What matters more is the reason why people get angry and whether they feel they can do anything about it. Andrew Lester writes, in his book, Angry Christian, that our capacity for anger is one of God's good gifts rooted in creation and serving important purposes in human life. Anger can function as an expression of love. As a fever signals that something is wrong, anger, perhaps particularly anger we do not understand, has something to teach us. Anger can be a source of revelation. It can be a diagnostic window revealing something important needs to be addressed. The Hebrew people knew a God who could be angered. The capacity for anger is activated only as an expression of God's love. Jesus got angry. We see multiple times in the New Testament where Jesus himself got angry. We can learn a lot 
by paying attention to what made Jesus angry. Jesus got angry at disciples, especially Peter. He got angry at the religious leaders. He got angry at political leaders. Jesus threw tables, which might seem like an un-Jesus-like thing to do. But he did this when unnecessary barriers were put between God and people in the court of Gentiles. The place in the temple meant for any person to come and to pray and to worship regardless of their background. Jesus was indignant. The only time that particular word is used in the New Testament shows us that Jesus becomes indignant when his closest friends, his closest disciples, they all of a sudden start acting as some sort of holy bouncers trying to separate Jesus from some of the most vulnerable and weakest members of society, little children. In fact, he goes on to say that it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. If we are to love as Jesus loved, then we must also be angry as Jesus was angry when the values of the gospel are violated. Injustice breaks God's heart. Does it break ours? Justice is making what is broken whole and complete. It is looking at the world through the window of God's love. Injustice abounds in poverty and oppression, in racism and crime. Injustice is systemic brokenness. It should bother us that millions of children die from preventable diseases, that unregulated payday loans oppress and exploit the working poor, that 45 million people are currently trapped in slavery, that there are people to this day, on this very day, profiting from trafficking children, that refugees struggle to keep from drowning in oceans. All of this should bother us. Sometimes it is a sin not to be angry. Yet sadly, we who too often live with paralyzing self-focus and deep apathy toward the plight of others who live daily with injustice, we seem too easily to walk right by. Scripture encourages us to not look after our own affairs only but to have an eye to how other people are getting along as well. It's having more than a passing interest in someone besides yourself and your nuclear family. It's caring about others in a way that involves our calendars and our pocketbooks too. However, with the needs of the world so great, how do we even hope to make a dent as the injustices of the world are so vast, where do we even begin? It can be all so overwhelming, which can become an excuse for inaction. We can't help everywhere, but we can help somewhere. Here's where I am helped by words from devoted Christ follower, now deceased Mother Teresa, a UN ambassador and US representative Tony Hall was walking with Mother Teresa through the 
just suffocating packed streets of Calcutta, India, when all of a sudden, looking around him, he blurted out, how can we possibly make a difference with all of this poverty around us? To which Mother Teresa replied, do the thing in front of you. She also said, none of us can do, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. We are not called, friends, to manic action, but rather sustained service. One possibility for all of us to consider is that we each could focus on one particular issue of injustice. We could do that individually, we could do that in company with others and devote ourselves to that one thing in order to move more toward people in need. This seems to matter a lot to God. This is how God wants to be worshiped, by the way. I don't know about you, but the the verses there from verses 21 through 24, they are piercing to my heart for those of us who love to come together and to worship. But God says the way that he wants to be worshiped is that we do justly by our neighbor. The Lord wants justice and righteousness literally to cascade through Israel's daily life and through our daily life like a mighty river. God does not expect them or us to dry up like some desert uh, riverbed that contains water only during periodic times when there is a heavy rainfall. He expects for that consistently, for water, for justice, for righteousness, for the good gifts of God to bless others, to be present to be sustained always. Pilgrims, during the time of Amos, they went to their religious festivals, but they left religion behind when they returned home. Pilgrims rolled into the festivals, but justice and righteousness failed to roll into the irrigation channels of daily life and relationships. Brothers and sisters, going to church on Sunday mornings, that is not what puts us in right relationship with God. Worship that pleases our God is accompanied by acts of mercy and justice toward the poor, the broken, and the oppressed. It is the witness of scripture that there seems to be some sort of seamless relationship between ethical behavior and true worship, between justice and piety. In worship, we ascribe worth, all praise and honor and glory and power to the one the only one who is worthy to receive our praise. We give worth to the one who matters most. However, biblical worship, it not only turns us upward, points us upward, it turns us outward as well. To one another and to the most needy in God's world. The lament of today's scripture concludes with the promise that death and resurrection will be the result. The nation's death is a foregone conclusion and already mourned, indeed some 40 years after the prophecy of Amos, the northern kingdom will be invaded, the cities destroyed and the people carried into exile. In time, God will be the one who turns ashes into beauty mourning into gladness and despair into praise, for God intends to bring a new people out of the ruins of the past. 
God is forever doing a new thing. Amos is hope, you've gotta look for it. When you read, it's, it's not always easy to see. Amos' hope is that there will be a remnant of faithful people who will live in right relationship with God and in right relationship with neighbors. Ironically, before my recent vacation, I was pondering an article in Leadership Magazine where Bill Hybels is interviewed and he is speaking about something called strategic neglect. Strategic neglect is letting go of the things that aren't really necessary in our schedules to focus on the things that are most important. So I was thinking about that article and then I examined my rule of life while on vacation, which is a part of my habit during that time. And I realized that the one intention that I had neglected this past year the most consistently was the practice of showing mercy to someone on the margins. A year ago, I mentored an at-risk student at Webb Middle School. This year, that got squeezed out. I'm gonna ask those closest to me to hold me accountable to a more regular, concrete practice of serving the poor and doing justice to be awake to God and God's purposes for the world in order to live my worship and to practice resurrection. Because the prophet Amos reminds us, he sure reminded me, that strategically neglecting the most vulnerable is not an option in God's economy. Friends, the survival of the fittest is not our ethic. The gospel is not just for those who are able, which is really good news for all of us, including those who are small, handicapped, disabled, marginalized, undervalued, and powerless. Once again, we are instructed to give up the normal human ideas of greatness. If we are going to participate in the rule and reign of God. The heart of Amos' message we will be judged by how we treat the weakest members. We know that the Bible is largely about divine generosity. God has been and will continue to be extraordinarily generous to us. Jesus' disciples are to be active in doing good to others. This is our way of life but not just a way of life or a rule of life, but it's a means of life. When we align ourselves with the will and heart of God, we will come into possession of life. Just as we live with a generous father, so then should the world live with generous followers of Christ. If we do this, can you imagine how beautiful and how right the world will be. God reminds us that when you are in a covenant with the God of the universe and the hope of the world, that you just can't live your lives doing whatever you please. Pray with me.
God, have mercy on us. Almighty God, give us grace to be not only hearers, but doers of your holy word. Not only to admire, but to obey your teaching. Not only to profess, but to practice your gospel, to practice resurrection. Not only to speak words of love, but to live your gospel. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray with expectation for all that you will do. God, bring life where there is death. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.